When I was a kid, Thanksgiving were always the same, and they were wonderful. We'd go to my Aunt Marianne and Uncle Paul's house for dinner. Marianne spent days preparing for the event, and there were the usual traditional dishes and always three kinds of pie, pumpkin, apple, and mincemeat. Each year, I looked forward to our family gathering together to celebrate. It's been about 10 years now since we lost Aunt Marianne. And in my family, those traditional meals with a dozen or more guests, well, they seem to be a thing of the past. These days, it gets harder and harder for everyone to get together, even at the holidays. In November of 1998, the Pravacki family was feeling that same sort of challenge, that it's not always easy to get everyone together for a family meal, for a holiday celebration. Wanting to accommodate everyone's schedule, they planned their Thanksgiving feast for the Sunday after Thanksgiving. In addition to the four members of the Pravacki family, they invited two guests to join them. There would be a traditional meal, likely a football game on television, and some good old-fashioned family time. The same kind of celebration shared in households across the country. Well, that's what Stephen and Linda Pravacki were planning. But that's not what happened. Come with me to November 29, 1998, to a family gathering near Muskegon, Michigan, where a son commits the most terrible crimes against those who love him the most. Seth Pravacki was born June 2, 1980, the youngest child and second son of parents Stephen and Linda Pravacki. When Seth was born, he joined Jedediah, better known as Jed, his brother who was two years older. The Pravackis settled in a tri-level home near Michigan's Adventure, a 250-acre amusement park in Muskegon County. The Pravacki family was known in the community through their work. Dad Stephen was a fifth-grade teacher at Reith's Puffer Elementary School. Mom Linda worked as a receptionist in a medical office, but was known as one of the founders of the West Michigan Herb Society and she'd also previously served as the group's president. In the fall of 1998, Jed was a student at Muskegon Community College. He'd decided to follow in his father's footsteps and become a teacher. He was a mannerly young man, well-liked by his peers. In the fall of 1998, Jed was dating a local girl, 19-year-old April Boss. Like Jed, April was a student at Muskegon Community College with plans to study education. Seth Pravacki, the baby of the family, he was a senior in high school. Seth was struggling. In 1997, he'd gotten into some legal trouble. He'd been arrested for shoplifting, twice, and charged with embezzlement. And I wish there was more information available on the latter charge, because it seems like such a strange thing for a high school junior to be in trouble for. Embezzlement. Seth's parents, while disappointed in his choices, they stood by Seth as he attended counseling and served a 10-day sentence at a local youth home. His parents took him to a physician for an evaluation, and Seth was prescribed Wellbutrin to help his mood. If you aren't familiar with this medication, Wellbutrin is commonly prescribed to manage depression, attention deficit disorder, and sometimes to control bipolar disorder. As the Thanksgiving holiday approached, things at the Pravacki home seemed mostly normal. 
Seth hadn't been in any additional trouble, but he was still staying out past curfew. As they planned the late Thanksgiving gathering, an invitation was extended to the boy's grandfather, John Pravacki. John was born in the Muskegon area in 1920, and he was known in his neighborhood as being friendly, kind, and eager to lend a hand. John was the local Mr. Fix-It, and he was well-liked by those who knew him. And on the morning of November 29th, Linda is hurrying through preparing the meal and tidying up the house ahead of guests arriving at one. As she is busy in the kitchen, Stephen and Seth are arguing. Stephen is frustrated with Seth, who seemed far more focused on his rock band than on his studies. Seth was the bass player in a band called Dementia, with some of his classmates from school. Like many teenagers, Seth had big hopes for the band, and he imagined himself living the life of a rock star. But it was not meant to be. The disagreement between father and son likely came from tension. Tension built up over the previous year and Seth's arrest for shoplifting and embezzlement. Seth's parents loved him and they wanted him to succeed, but they were frustrated by Seth's priorities. What Stephen Pravacki did not know is that on Saturday, less than 24 hours before the Thanksgiving meal was to be served, his younger son was in Muskegon visiting gun shops. Seth Pravacki attempted to buy 22 caliber bullets, but since he was only 17, the shops declined to sell him any. Seth also talked to friends. Some might say he was bragging. Others, they might say he was venting. But the message was the same. Seth wished that his father was dead. While Stephen and Seth argue, Jed went to the living room and turned on the television. It's about 12 noon when Stephen leaves the house to pick up his father and bring him over for the day. Jed is watching TV and Linda, their mother, she heads to the bathroom. She's decided to take a quick shower and get ready before their guests arrive. According to statements made to police, with his father gone and his mother busy in the shower, Seth fetched his father's gun, a 22 caliber Ruger, and went downstairs. He pointed the weapon at his brother and shot him in the back of the head. Seth then dragged Jed's body downstairs and out of sight. Then he waited for his father to return home. As his dad exits the car, Seth shoots him in the back of the head and is startled to see his grandfather, John Pravacki, standing there. Seth turns the gun on his grandfather and shoots him in the head. When the first shot isn't enough to kill his grandfather, Seth steps closer to the 78-year-old man and fires again. He leaves their bodies near the garage and returns to the house. Seth can hear his mother getting out of the shower. He opens the bathroom door and fires the gun, shooting Linda Pravacki in the head. Minutes pass, and Seth is alone in the house with the bodies of his parents, his older brother, and his grandfather. He's surprised to hear a car pull up. He looks out the front window and sees 19-year-old April Boss walking up the driveway. He hears her startled cry as she sees the bodies of John and Stephen Pravacki. April enters the house, likely looking for help or for the phone so she can call 911. Seth levels the Ruger at April and shoots her dead in the kitchen. Just like his mother, father, and brother, April is shot once in the back of the head. While Seth is not forthcoming about his actions immediately following the murders, Police believe that he started cleaning up the house, 
trying to mop up blood and arrange the bodies to set the stage for investigators. Seth has decided that if he tells the police there was a robbery, that thieves descended on the modest and isolated home, then shot the occupants in the course of their actions, well, if they believe that, Seth can get away with murder. Overwhelmed by the task ahead of him, Seth reaches for the phone and calls his friend, Stephen Wallace. And we don't know what he told Stephen, but Wallace came over that afternoon to help Seth clean the house, to help him move the bodies and get rid of evidence. It appears that Wallace even assisted Seth in getting rid of valuables like the television and VCR. At one point, Seth lines the trunk of the family car with garbage bags. His plan is to load the bodies in the trunk and dump them elsewhere. He starts with the body of his father, shocked by how heavy it is. He cannot lift it into the trunk, not even with the help of his friend. So they scrap that plan. Wallace tells Seth that he has to leave. He has church youth group. He can't miss it. And listeners, I found it odd that Seth and Stephen were moving so freely as they cleaned up the scene. There were bodies both inside and outside of the house. And that's when I learned that the Pravacki home was in a somewhat isolated area. They didn't live in a subdivision, and they didn't have neighbors nearby. And if anyone heard the gunshots, well, it was hunting season. And you get used to hearing gunfire at certain times of the year. At some point, the house and the land were purchased, and the Pravacki home will be torn down. But late in the evening of November 29th, Seth appears in public once again. This time, he's at the store to purchase duct tape. It's nearly midnight when the parents of April Boss arrive at the Pravacki home. April, a good worker and conscientious girl, she didn't show up for her job. She was scheduled for the third shift and it just wasn't like her to not show up and not call. Concerned when they couldn't reach her, April's mother and stepdad went to the Pravacki home. As Julie and Tom Cooper pull into the driveway, they see a man standing over a body on the ground. When they exited the car, the man ran off, headed into the woods. They didn't get a good look at the man, but it's clear to them that the body on the ground is very much dead. Tom Cooper enters the Pravacki home to call for help. Police respond to the residents, and as they search, they find five bodies. The house is just covered in blood, and there are obvious and clumsy attempts to clean up the scene. The youngest Pravacki child, Seth, he's nowhere to be found. While investigators have a long and gruesome night at the Pravacki home, Seth is on the run. One of his first tasks is getting rid of the spent shell casings from the house. He knows police are there, which spoiled his plan of staging the scene to look like a robbery gone wrong. With no place to turn and the Michigan night raining and cold, Seth hides out in the woods. With Seth fleeing through the woods, police are just starting to grasp the magnitude of what happened that day. That's when a man comes out of the woods. It's Seth's friend, Stephen Wallace. He tells them that he needs to talk to a detective. He needs to talk to someone right away because he has information. On Monday, November 30th, students in the small Reith's Puffer School District are greeted with horrific and tragic news. Mr. Pravacki, the fifth grade teacher, he'd been murdered along with his family, and his youngest son is missing. As news of the murders courses through the high school, friends remember Jed Pravacki and April Boss, and kids are talking about Seth Pravacki. They don't know if he's a victim 
but they're sure nothing good happened at the Pravacki home that day. While the community reels under the weight of the crime, Stephen Wallace is talking to police. He's candid with them. He knows he's screwed up. He's scared, and he wants to help. He probably also wants to get out of any trouble he could be in because he helped. So he tells them about his interactions with Seth on Sunday, how Seth called him asking for help, about Seth's plan to stage the house to look like a robbery. He tells them that Seth asked him to get rid of the gun. Wallace will lead police to the pond where he threw the weapon. Wallace tells officers that he helped Seth that afternoon, but then he had to leave because he had a youth group meeting at the church. After youth group, he went back to the Pravacki home. He was the shadowy figure the Coopers saw when they arrived looking for their daughter, April, and he did not know where Seth was. While police are interviewing Wallace, trying to learn as much as they can about Seth and what happened that day, officers are at Proper High School. They have the school on lockdown. They're worried that Seth will show up at the school. Since not all of the students know Seth, they are shown a photo of him and asked to keep an eye out. Senior Genevieve Simonelli was deeply shaken by the murders. She didn't know the Pravacki family, and she didn't know Seth, but the viciousness and brutality of the killings, well, it upset her. So she opted to leave school early. As Simonelli drove home, she passed a hitchhiker, a young man who was wet from the rain and shivering from the cold. She slowed down and offered him a ride. As he entered the car, she realized who she'd picked up. Seth Pravacki was now seated beside her in the car. He asked if she would take him to, quote, a friend's house, and she agreed. Her hands trembled slightly as she guided the car toward their destination. Once she'd let him off, she immediately called the police to let them know where Seth was. After exiting Simonelli's vehicle, Seth went to the home of his friend, but no one was there. Cold, hungry, and frustrated, Seth entered the pole barn behind the house, which allowed him to get out of the wet weather. Minutes later, tipped off by Simonelli, police descend on the scene, and at 1 p.m. on November 30th, Seth Pravacki is taken into custody. At the sheriff's department, he was interviewed by sheriff's detective captain Dennis Edwards. Seth told them that his brother, Jed, was the shooter and that he, Seth, was lucky to be alive. Edwards looked at Seth, the tall, skinny young man who was still a bit damp from his night outside. Edwards was sizing him up, weighing what the investigative team knew versus the story that the teenager was telling them. Seth would eventually confess to shooting his family. Attempting to clean up the house and staging the scene to look like a robbery, and to soliciting help from his friend, Stephen Wallace. Seth told the detective that he'd been fighting with his father that morning. He said that he and his father fought frequently. As Seth is telling the story, he doesn't know that Stephen Wallace told police what Seth said long before the murders, about how Seth vowed to kill his father and finally be rid of him. Seth doesn't know that police have video of him attempting to buy bullets the night before the murders. Seth knows none of this as he tells them that he just snapped. Seth's version of events is that his father told him that they didn't love him anymore, that his parents didn't love him and they wanted him to move out, that Seth was an adult and it was time for him to make it on his own since he didn't like their rules. 
Crushed by the revelation that his parents didn't love him and didn't want him, Seth said that he snapped and went for the gun, that he shot his parents and his brother in a blind rage and fury. It was then that investigators laid out their cards. They knew Seth planned the murders. They knew he'd been thinking of killing his family long before the shootings took place. Whatever childish fantasy Seth Pravacki constructed about the reason for the killings, he was presented with the facts. And speaking of childish fantasies, Pravacki wrote a letter to his bandmates telling them that his notoriety as a killer was just the push that their band, Dementia, needed to finally make it big. He didn't want them to waste this opportunity to become famous rock stars. After consulting with an attorney, Pravacki agreed to plead guilty to the murders, and he hoped that his guilty plea would allow the judge to show him some leniency. He even reminded the judge that he, Seth Pravacki, was young, and that he hadn't had a chance yet to see the world. He hoped that the judge would delay his sentencing and allow him some time to explore on his own before sending him to prison. The judge, Muskegon County Circuit Court Judge James Graves, he wasn't interested in Pravacki's request. He did listen as Pravacki addressed the court, saying, quote, I'm sorry for what I did. I'm here to accept punishment I most certainly deserve. As set by the law in Michigan, Pravacki was sentenced to life in prison without possibility of parole. In a separate trial, Stephen Wallace was tried for being an accessory to the murders. Wallace's defense is that he was afraid of Pravacki and felt that if he didn't cooperate and help him, Pravacki would kill him as well. Wallace also pointed to how he'd cooperated with law enforcement and insisted in the investigation. During his two-week trial, where he took the stand in his own defense, many hoped that Wallace would face prison for the help he offered Seth Pravacki in the hours after the murders. The jury, who apparently appreciated hearing from Wallace during the trial, acquitted him of the charges. But in 2008, he found himself incarcerated for probation violations. Apparently, Wallace was on probation for receiving stolen property. According to a story in the Muskegon Chronicle, Wallace has a long history with police. He was convicted of vandalism at age 19, domestic violence at ages 22, 24, and 25, and attempted resisting and obstructing police at age 24. While Seth's plea and sentencing brought a sense of closure to these macabre proceedings, the community was left with questions. Mainly why? What made Seth Pravacki murder five people? The killings were carried out in a cold and methodical way. Each victim shot once in the back of the head, except for his grandfather. Seth shot the 78-year-old twice, saying that the second shot was necessary since the old man was still alive after the first shot. And listeners, it's no secret that Seth had issues. He'd been caught shoplifting a year earlier, caught not once but twice. And it was rumored that he was responsible for vandalism in the community. Seth spent 10 days in the county youth home. He'd attended counseling and started taking medication to help with his mood and affect. Friends of Linda and Stephen Pravacki came forward to talk to police. One of Linda's friends related a story about Seth's temper. Linda shared that Seth once became so angry he stood on the dishwasher in the kitchen, breaking the appliance. A friend of Seth's father revealed that Stephen Pravacki was concerned about his son's emotional well-being. 
and he said he was afraid that Seth had no conscience. He was concerned that his son was a sociopath. A letter that Seth wrote from prison may also shed some light on his mindset. Seth wrote that he was 14 when he started drinking alcohol and smoking marijuana. By age 16, he'd started using LSD and speed. Seth was proud of the fact that he could party with his friends while still holding down a part-time job and keeping his grades up. He made no mention of the shoplifting, the vandalism, or the embezzlement. This letter also included details of his conversion to Christianity. Seth made much of the fact that he wasn't raised in a religious household and that religion took hold of him behind bars and helped him greatly. Seth described himself as blessed by God and that he'd come to terms with the fact that he would live out his life behind the walls of a prison. And listeners, this should be the end of the story. Seth Pravacki in prison for the rest of his natural life for the murders of five people. It should be the end, but it's not. On Thursday, July 15, 2010, Seth and two other prisoners at the Ken Ross Correctional Facility in Michigan's Upper Peninsula overpowered the driver of a tractor trailer that was making a delivery to the prison. The three drove the truck through one of the fences, taking them outside of the prison walls. Unfortunately for the would-be escapees, the truck was ensnarled in the fencing and would not go any further. The trio abandoned the vehicle and took off on foot. They were warned to stop, to stop running or they would be shot, and two of the three escapees stopped and raised their hands. The third man kept running. He kept running until a guard fired and a bullet entered the fleeing prisoner's head, ending his life. Just like his father, mother, brother, and grandfather before him, Seth Pravacki died from a gunshot wound to the head. In a strange twist, one of the men he attempted the escape with, 25-year-old Andrew Ross, was also in prison for the firearm deaths of his parents and older brother. Ross, who lived in Shelby Township, was 18 years old when he murdered his family in 2003. Seth Pravacki was 30 years old at the time of his death. Already Gone is taking a holiday hiatus again this year. Look for a new episode on January 20th, 2021. Audio production for Already Gone is provided by Gray Multimedia. I'm Nina Instead, the writer, producer, and voice behind the Already Gone podcast. I appreciate you listening. Have a lovely holiday season and please be safe.